Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. Back in 2009, the Bitcoin network was created. By late 2021, Time magazine reported that the global cryptocurrency market was now worth more than $3 trillion and had roughly quadrupled from its valuation just a year earlier. Just this week, the Financial Times reported that blue chip investors are piling into crypto groups. Seen by some as a utopian alternative to the global financial system and by others as a hugely volatile scam, cryptocurrency remains mired in confusion and uncertainty. But is it here to stay? Joining me today to help unpick the subject is Amy Caster. Amy is an independent reporter focused on cryptocurrencies and financial fraud, whose work has appeared in Forbes, Business Insider and Bitcoin magazine, among others. Welcome to the bunker, Amy. Hey, Justin. Thank you for having me. So first things first, what would be a concise layperson's definition of a cryptocurrency for the listeners? Sure. Well, there have been different kinds of cryptocurrencies. Initially, we had sort of centralized cryptocurrencies where a central party would control what was happening. For example, eGold and Liberty Reserve were examples of that. Now, those were both shut down because they became basically a PayPal for underground economies. What evolved later was Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is a decentralized cryptocurrency. So the goal of Bitcoin was essentially to create a digital currency where there would be no middle person involved. So it's a peer-to-peer digital currency where there's no central party checking the ledger to make sure there's double spends on the network. And double spend means that, oh, I'm going to pay you just in a dollar, and then I'm going to take this same dollar and use it and pay somebody else. You don't want that happening. And that's the function of an intermediary, right? So Bitcoin has done away with that. So essentially, it's a currency with banks, central reserves, governments, all the things we currently think of as being the regulators of that world removed. So it just becomes peer-to-peer. Right. There's no central person managing the ledger. It's it's peer-to-peer. Now, mind you, although it was initially designed as a e-currency, as a digital currency, it's not really used by that, like that. It, it's, it's used mainly for speculation. People buying into Bitcoin and Ether and other cryptocurrencies in the hopes that the value of that is going to go up over the time and they're going to essentially make money off of it. It is used in in some groups as a payment method, but mainly it's popular for that, say, among, you know, in the ransomware industry, (laughs) which is a, a big problem, right? And any type of sort of payments where you kind of want to hide the origin of the funds. And as someone who you cover a wide range of, you know, like the economic world and you know, the financial world. What sparked your interest first in this specific area as a subject? I think initially I was interested in the technology and and what Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies were trying to do. And I worked initially for a lot of crypto media outlets. I worked for several of those. But as I learned more over time, I understood that, hey, wait a minute, this isn't a real good investment for people, and it's plagued by hacks and frauds and scams and a lot of sketchy characters. Do you think, as an an area of economics, do you think it gets the serious attention it deserves from economists and financial experts, or are you a bit of an outlier in that sense that you're really digging into this? You know, Justin, I'm I'm less of an outlier now because there is a lot more skepticism in the press now. I mean, before 
you just sort of felt like you were shouting at the sun and nobody was really listening. But now you see regularly there are stories in the paper about NFTs and, and some of the problems behind cryptocurrencies and as the regulators have also stepped in and there's some real concern around them. Why do you think it's taken the news and the sort of reporters' side longer to catch up on that? Is it just that people didn't fully understand the issues at hand because it was an emerging field? Well, yeah. I mean, there are several reasons. It's complex. It's not easy to understand unless you're really kind of deep into the area. You know, I mean, I spend a lot of time on message boards talking to other crypto skeptics. I follow the news all day long in, in the crypto space. And I've been doing it for many years now. And also there are crypto publications that are specifically geared toward putting out the good news about Bitcoin and these blockchain projects. Many of these publications are basically funded by crypto money, you know, by organizations that have a lot invested in the crypto space. So they have had so much access to enough money where they can just kind of have created their own PR machine, right? So that's a big part of the problem. The other part is it's complex. And, and I think journalists these days don't have a lot of time they need to get a press release. They need to spin out a story quickly. So there, for a long time, there just weren't people that really specialized in this subject matter. There were a spate of stories around this Christmas just gone of uh, crypto exchanges going down. The closure of two Australian exchanges in December saw $50 million in lost currency. In terms of the consequences and the ramifications of this, are we just talking about personal loss or is enough money now tied up in these exchanges that their failure could pose a systemic threat to the financial system in the way that, say, mortgage-backed securities did in 2008 when they failed. So, Justin, in, in last year, in 2021, there were more than 20 exchange hacks where the hacker got away with $10 million in profit, right? And there were about six cases where the value of the fund stolen exceeded $100 million. So, so hacks on crypto exchanges, money going missing, exchanges going under, that's not something that's new. I mean, these things happen on a regular basis, you know, where money just disappears. If you have like offshore exchanges or exchanges where they don't really have a headquarters, you don't really have a window into what's going on. So we don't even know if these are hacks or inside jobs where, where money is disappearing. You asked me, you know, if this is going to be a systemic problem. It's, it's, the problem is bigger than just these exchanges. I mean, there are, I don't know, I think these stable coins where we're not clear in some cases what's backing the stable coins and stable coins for the listeners are like stand-ins for dollars where you have digital dollars and, and behind them are supposed to be assets that back those dollars that can be changed to do cash easily, sort of like money market funds, right? So there's Tether, which now has like 78 billion Tethers out there representing $78 billion that are kind of sloshing around in the crypto markets. You have the second biggest stable coin, which is UCSD, which is put out by Circle and actually Coinbase. And there's about, I think they just crossed 50 billion USDCs, right? USD Circle of their stable coin. So, I mean, there's a lot of these dollars. And I, the concern now with regulators is that if something happens where people lose confidence and that this stable coin is worth a dollar, there might be some sort of a bank run 
and that these stablecoin issuers would have to liquidate their assets really quickly, and that could have a systemic effect on some of the financial markets. I mean, the crypto market generally seems to have been, from my reading, extremely volatile recently. I know from November 2021 to the end of January, its global market has, according to a piece in Quartz this week, halved, went from $3 trillion to $1.5. Is there something particular that's causing that? Is there a reason for this great volatility right now? I I talk about Bitcoin a lot because when Bitcoin goes up and down, everything else follows because Bitcoin is the most widely traded cryptocurrency. It's always been volatile, right? It's not just like the price goes up and up over time. It also has periods where it just crashes, you know? I mean, and since the recent all-time high was November of nearly $70,000, $69,000, right? So it had then, since then, over a couple months, lost 50% of its value. Why? Part of it is because cryptocurrency kind of follows what's happening in the stock markets a little bit. Also because, you know, we haven't seen any recent issuances of, say, Tether, that popular stablecoin that I was talking about. But overall, there is a lot of volatility in those markets. And the problem has always been for the cryptocurrency space is to keep bringing a new flow of cash into the space. So there has to be a new flow of real money coming in there so that when people realize their investment or try to cash out a Bitcoin, there's cash that they can access, right? You mentioned there the the way that a drop in the regular stock market can bleed over into the crypto market. I mean, for crypto's advocates, much of the attraction seems to be that it's decoupled from the regular economy. You know, it's something that stands apart. Is that autonomy sustainable or is it naturally just going to converge? It's not decoupled, Justin. It's not just a, a natural market. You know, you have to understand that there are a lot of things going on, for example, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are big now, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, these new things called fractionalized NFTs. There are all these things that are constantly happening that are sort of like new sort of scams to bring a new influx of cash into the system, right? And at the same time, you have a ton of VC money and an investor money going on into the space. You look at one of the large exchanges just got, I think, $400 million in funding. There is just mind-boggling amounts of money that is going into the space in the hopes that we can bring in more cash. Ultimately, the idea is somebody, somebody has to, to cash out on, on whatever tokens are being created. Taking a, a little step back from the the numbers and the details and looking at the sort of bigger culture around this, raising even the mild criticism of crypto online seems to very quickly attract extremely ardent defenders of the currency and the idea. What do you think is going on there? Is it that a certain type of person is drawn to crypto originally? Or is it that being involved in crypto encourages a certain slightly cultish mindset? It's a cult. Yes, it's a cult. It has, Bitcoin is is a cult that there are people I think that actually believe that, you know, this is going to become a world currency or this is going to save people in Argentina or El Salvador or wherever it is. So when you are critical of the space and you, you, you bring in a bit of realism and reality, um, there are a lot of people that can be very nasty and attacking. Do you get a great deal of that yourself? 
Yes, I think so. Absolutely. And also because I was a woman in the space too. Sure. You describe yourself as a no-coiner, meaning that you don't hold any crypto assets yourself. Is this primarily to avoid conflicts of interest in your reporting? Or was there another reason why you chose not to get involved? It's to avoid conflict of interest. You know, I, I don't think I could really report honestly about things if I had a vested interest in the prices going up. It doesn't mean that I haven't in the past held cryptocurrency. I mean, I'd worked for publications long ago that sometimes would pay you in Bitcoin. So I, I had some experience, but I, I, I would generally just sort of cash out because I just don't want anything to do with it. You know, I think it's too risky for a number of reasons. The volatility, the it's just too easy to lose your coins. There's too many hacks. I mean, it's just who needs it? I wanted to move on to discussing NFTs, non-fungible tokens. As with crypto before, can you give a concise definition of this for the listeners? Sure. So fungible means interchangeable. So if you think of Bitcoin or Ether, the second biggest cryptocurrency. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. One Ether is one Ether. One dollar is one dollar. If you and I in exchange dollars, you know, it's the same dollar, right? With non-fungible tokens, they're uh, in a sense unique. So they're not interchangeable. They're non-fungible tokens, right? And they have been used to represent physical things or actually, for example, digital things on the internet, like digital art, digital music, and then traded as an NFT. Having described there what an NFT is, primarily what would be the problem with that? So the problem with non-fungible tokens is that the pitch is that, hey, you know, these are going to represent some form of digital art. And finally, digital artists can, can have ownership over their work. They can sell their work. They can make some money. You know, you have a chance as a digital artist to now stake your claim in the world, right? But, but NFTs don't contain the art. The object that they represent, even if it's in the digital world, isn't on the blockchain. You cannot put large files in the blockchain. So what they do is they just have pointers to an object elsewhere on the internet. If that object is moved or it no longer exists, your NFT will simply point to nothing. And the other problem is a lot of people don't understand that when you buy an NFT, that doesn't give you copyright over, over the work that it, it represents. You can only get copyright over the work if it's put in a written contract. And aside from that, there's so much theft of people's art. People are, are stealing people's work. They're plagiarizing. They're creating NFTs. They're trying to sell it. We see what, what are called rug pulls. I, I mean, there are so many creative things that scammers are now doing to trick people out of their money in this space. It's just rife with frauds and scams right now. It's just a mess. You mentioned the concept there, the rug pull. What's, uh, what's that? Rug pull is like if I start a project and I say I want to invest in this or if you want to be a part of this project, you can have exclusive access to, for example, this online game or whatever it is, if you buy an NFT. And then the organizers of the project collect all this money and then all of a sudden the website's taken down, the Discord channel's gone, and they just disappear with the money. That's called a rug pull where they pull the rug out from underneath all the investors. 
So probably the highest profile story that most people would be aware of around NFTs is the sale back in March 2021 by the American artist Beeple, where a piece sold for $69 million at an auction at Christie's. Now, for the backstory here, prior to October 2020, the most that Beeple had ever sold a print for was $100. He was then the subject of a series of hugely profitable NFT sales. You wrote one of the most detailed examinations of that huge final sale. I'd point listeners towards Amy's website website where you can read that. It's a very, very detailed breakdown. In a condensed form, what do you think actually happened there and why? So all of a sudden, this hitherto unknown digital artist made headlines all over the world that he's become the third most valuable artist to sell a piece at auction. And everybody was like, what the heck just happened, right? Well, Beeple sold this digital JPEG and it wasn't even like a single JPEG. It was sort of this collage of 5,000. It was basically his sketchbook over 14 years. He'd just been sort of practicing and he'd create a piece every day, put it online. And so what they did was they kind of packaged it all together in this collage and, and sold it for $69 million in cryptocurrency, not cash. This major auction house, Christie's, accepted the bid in, in cryptocurrency. It was a, at the time, it was this, this person, Medikovin, um, who turned out to be Vignesh Sundarasan, who was a crypto entrepreneur businessman in Singapore, who was from Canada, who had previously run a cryptocurrency exchange that had collapsed he had been, unbeknownst to people at the time, bidding up the price of Beeple's work since October the previous year. And what he had done was he had bought a collection of some of Beeple's work earlier at the end of 2020, and he sort of packaged it together and what we call fractionalized it and created these new tokens called B20 tokens, right, which was a fungible token, and started to sell that online. That B20 token, and by the way, he owned the majority, like close to 60% of the supply of that token. The B20 token was trading at $2 a token in mid-February 2021. When the hammer came down on the Beeple auction at Christie's in March, the price of B20 shot up to $28. So on March 11th, the day Sundarisen bought the Beeple every days at the Christie's auction, the value of his shares in the B20 tokens rose by $51 million. So that kind of gives you a sense of, of what's happening in this space. And it was that sale that really, that Beeple sale that sort of just kicked off this whole madness in the NFT market. And I, I, it just sort of like this, this collective craziness where suddenly, you know, you had artists everywhere thinking, well, you know, Beeple did this. He became, you know, this multimillionaire every overnight. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can create an NFT. Maybe I can sell it. Maybe I can make money for my work and also become wealthy overnight. So what happened? You had all these artists rushing out to mint their own NFTs of their work, right? And in order to mint an NFT, you have to immediately buy cryptocurrency. You've got to buy Ethereum because it costs money to mint an NFT. So that starts pulling money into the crypto space, right? And then from there, from that huge event, I mean, you've just seen huge amounts of VC money pouring into the NFT space. You see celebrities buying NFT tokens. Um, you see them shilling, you know, uh, tokens on, on late night TV. I mean, it just... 
it's just sort of a collective craziness. As an outsider, I mean, I look at this and my gut reaction is NFTs look like a pyramid selling scam with almost no aesthetic value. Or is this just what all new mediums look like when they first emerge? Like, am I just being a grumpy old man who doesn't see the artistic value in a JPEG of an ape? Like, is there, is there possibly something we're missing here? So I don't know that I would categorize NFTs as a pyramid scheme because they're non-fungible, right? They're actually not that easy to sell, but there are sort of other schemes that happen around them. For example, like I just described with the B20 token, where people are fractionalizing NFTs. They'll take one NFT, they'll lock it up in a smart contract, and then they'll create all these other tokens that are fungible and they sell those to retailers in, in the name of, so we're, we're, you know, democratizing this art. You know, you could never afford a million dollar NFT, but you can buy a piece of it and you can benefit if the price goes up. And now, of course, these look like securities offerings, you know, unregistered securities. But that's one of the ways that people capitalize on NFTs. Another clever way to capitalize mm-hmm. NFTs, if you have these DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations where you have these sort of collection of people that come together on the web that pull a bunch of money together and then they go out and they purchase an NFT through the DAO, right? And every DAO, and see, you can see this starts to get complicated and difficult to follow, but every DAO comes with a governance token, right? So say you have Pleaser DAO, which is backed by A16Z, a huge uh, uh, venture capitalist firm. And, and they'll go out and they'll buy all these high-profile NFTs while all of a sudden their governance token looks like, hey, I want a piece of this action. I'm going to go and buy this governance token, right? So these are the kind of things that happen. So right now, in addition to NFTs, there are governance tokens sold by DAOs and there are tokens that represent fractions of NFTs. So there are all these other schemes that come into play to bring in people's money, right? And 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 there, what people don't understand that there's a lot of risk involved. There's a lot of VC funding going into the space right now that's helping to push up the price. There are are, are crypto outlets that are always telling you uh, how positive and how good this is and what a great investment this is. And and the retail investors don't always understand the risks in these markets. China's state-backed blockchain services network last week announced the soft launch of a nationwide infrastructure to support Chinese NFTs. Uh, It's a step towards creating a domestic industry, which is separate from the global market and not associated with cryptocurrencies, which are banned in China. Uh, Russia's central bank also recently called for a ban on the use and mining of cryptocurrencies. What are the likely impacts of those moves from two such big economies? Will Is it like whack-a-mole and the market will just move elsewhere? Or can one country's actions really hit the value of even a loosely decentralized system? So China chased all the Bitcoin miners out of the country, and they've had to go to various other parts of the world and establish themselves there. So for people that understand, Bitcoin and Ethereum, the two biggest cryptocurrencies, operate on what's called a proof-of-work 
mechanism where that's how they validate each new block in the chain. And it's sort of like a lottery, right? So if you win the right to add the next block to the blockchain, you win the a bunch of newly minted tokens, right? And there's huge money in that. But also, so because it's sort of like a, a I want to say a puzzle or something in order to win, the more guesses you make, the more likely you're to win the lottery. And so to make so many guesses every second, you have to have these huge server farms. And and what happens is that and the more the price goes up, the more people want to mine Bitcoin and Ethereum. And now you have a, a, a network that consumes, in the case of Bitcoin, as much electricity as a small country. I mean, it's just huge. And there's becoming more awareness uh, among environmentalists how, how how horrible this is, how destructive it is to the planet, and how it contributes to global warming. And also, you have countries like Kosovo, Kazakhstan, where they are having problems with electricity. Uh, they're having blackouts and such. So they really want to put a ban on the miners and, and kick the miners out of the country. So, so this whole issue of proof of work has got a lot more awareness than it did in the past, you know? And so there's a lot of talk right now of, of moving to, for example, Ethereum is talking about moving to a, a proof of stake system that supposedly would consume far less electricity, but it has its own issues too. And casting forwards and as much as one can ever predict things in the economy, what do you think is the likely future for crypto? I think right now what we're seeing is a whole lot of cash going into this system to pump up the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. There's a rush to get into the NFT market, a rush to create NFT platforms, a rush to back some of these decentralized organizations because that's the new way to bring cash into the system. The regulations behind these have not caught up yet, but eventually they will, right? It, and, and you're already seeing examples of where retailers are getting hurt for example coinbase the big us exchange that went public recently they've they've seen like a 50% drop in their their stock at the end of the day who's going to get hurt probably the retail investors and just finally taking a very very long view whenever we look at bubbles and crazes in business and the economy we seem to see similar elements and patterns recurring as humans and with human nature are we just incapable of learning from economic history I think it's more complicated than that. There are certain loopholes in the system. There's certain regulatory loopholes. And there's a window where smart investors and insiders can get in there and take advantage of that loophole and make a whole lot of money. But the way they do that is by passing the risk along to the retail investors. It's people who get into cryptocurrency to late in the game. It's often the unsophisticated investor that gets into the game too late to realize any gains, and they end up losing. People that invest too much money into Bitcoin, thinking that, well, I'll just sit on my couch and I'm going to watch the, the price of this go up without realizing the risks behind it, that it doesn't go up, and that the people, for example, that were buying Bitcoin in November have already lost half of everything that they've invested in it. And the same with people that bought shares of Coinbase. They've seen their investment drop by half if they bought at the time of the initial offering. And on that sobering note, always remember, with your shoeshine boys giving you stock tips, then it's time to uh, leave the market. Amy, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker today. 
Thank you very much, Justin. Good talking to you. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tuned by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>